0: everyone, and welcome back to New Books and Biography, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Mark Clovis, your host for the channel. Today, I'm speaking with Martha Ackman, author of the book, These Fever Days, 10 Pivotal Moments in the Making of Emily Dickinson. Martha, welcome to the New Books Network. Thanks, Mark. Good to be with you. Well, it's good to have you on our podcast. I was wondering if you could start us off by telling our listeners something about yourself.
1: Well, I'm a writer and a journalist. Um, I um, The books that I, I have written focus on women who've changed America. And I write on a lot of pretty diverse topics. I get teased about that a little bit. Um, I've written a book called uh, The Mercury 13, The True Story of uh, 13 Americans and the Dream of Space Flight. And it's about women who secretly tested to be astronauts in the early days of the space program, and my next book was called Curveball, and it was about Toni Stone, the first woman to play professional baseball in the Negro Leagues. That was made into a, um, a Broadway show that opened up last, last summer in New York. Um, and uh, then I turned to Emily Dickinson. Um, so astronauts, baseball, Emily Dickinson. it seems uh, <laughs> it seems like a pretty wide swath. but as I said i'm I'm interested in I'm always interested in the story of what is America and trying to get at it um, through various lenses. And um, uh, Dickinson, I, I should say, has been a lifelong interest of mine for nearly 20 years, I taught uh, a seminar on Emily Dickinson in the poet's own home in Amherst, Massachusetts. I was a longtime professor at Montoyo College. So um, Dickinson, uh, at least in my mind, follows suit with those other books in in that I think she's a particularly unique way of looking at a period of American history. um, And what uh, what what an American poet is all about, particularly a woman poet. So um, so that that's what I do, and uh, in, in between the books, I I try to keep my hand in journalism and write um, uh, op eds and columns and and features, usually on the subject of American women.
0: Hmm. So you you're you know you've taught Emily Dickinson. You are very much immersed in uh her life what led you to make the to to undertake a book about her specifically
1: well it took a very long time <laughs> to 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 the conceit um i i'm a narrative nonfiction fiction writer um that means i use the techniques of storytelling uh character setting narrative tension to tell a true story so for years, I could not think of um, how to do a book on Dickinson that was in in that genre that that took that approach, and it really came out of my teaching. Um, I found that when I was teaching the Mount Holyoke seminar, that that my students sort of their eyes brightened. They they became enlivened when I wrapped um, a day's lesson around a particular moment in Emily Dickinson's life. Uh, to give you an example, um, when we talked about Dickinson's many, many poems about God and religious faith, um, we centered that on a time when Dickinson was a teenager, when she was 17 years old and and a student at Mount Holyoke Female Seminary, as it was then called. That was the antecedent to what became the college. Um, when she went head-to-head with the founder of the seminary, Mary Lyon, over a question of faith. Um, Now, I I should insert a bit of a caveat and say that uh, looking at Dickinson's poetry through her life is not to say that she was writing autobiography in her poem. She was adamant about that. Once in a letter she wrote, when I state myself as the representative of the verse, it is not me, but a supposed person. So she was always arguing for the primacy of the imagination, you know, and, and saying that um, even though she may have had an experience with uh, um, unsettled faith, um, that, that that is not to say what that that's what she's writing about in a particular poem. But nevertheless, I I found that that, that my students in in looking at both the life and the work um, had a richer, deeper sense of Emily Dickinson. So I began to think: Could I do this? Could I take, um, could I take pivotal moments in the poet's life when she was different, say at ten o'clock at night, than she was at ten o'clock in the morning? And and could I crack those open in in rich narrative detail uh, to make the point about why that particular day was so fundamental? Was a Turning point uh, in Dickinson's life, and also immerse readers in in the life she led to put flesh and blood um, on the poet. So, so I chose ten. It was a round number. Um, there were some days that were absolutely uh, self evident, where something very important happened. There were other days that that were more subtle. For example, the First chapter in the book is when I hear Dickinson's voice for the first time in a letter that that she's writing to a friend. So I had um, before I really began to to write the book, I had kind of fun talking with uh, fellow Dickinson scholars, friends of mine, and asking them which would be your ten days. Tell me <laughs> or, or tell tell me which would be, absolutely have to be in there. So it was a kind of a parlor game that I that I played for a number of years and came up with the 10 that made the most sense for me. They are chronological, but they're not consecutive. So the first day is when she is a 14-year-old and I hear that voice and she's strutting her stuff and sort of cocky and knows that she's good with language. And the last day is the day she dies. So, so I, I hope they give uh, readers the sense of her evolution as a poet, um, and also the, the sweep of her life.
0: One of the things that I thought I I enjoyed about your book as I was reading it was that you do, uh, help with that sense of evolution by making sure that these are not just, you know, 10 distinct days that are, are plucked without any sort of connection that you do, you know, you know, sort of connect the threads and, and and plug them together in a way that 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 makes it all work. Because I, I was thinking about the way you were describing it in terms of you know certain ideas about. I was thinking, for example, about how when you mentioned that first day, which you're talking about her the the announcement that all things are ready, and then how later on you have in your fourth chapter her announcement that she wants to be distinguished. You get a, a sense, I think, from. Those two chapters in particular, but also you see in other chapters as well the, the sense that this is not a person who was re- retiring uh, or, or who was uh, who was reticent about fame, but who in fact we're, we're talking about a consistent uh, aspect of her life that sometimes gets you know overshadowed. I think when you consider how uh, infrequently she was published.
1: That that's right. I'm, I'm I'm glad to hear you say that you felt there was a thread throughout. I, I tried to. Um, uh... You know, always ask myself now where was I, <laughs> you know, in the, in the previous in the previous chapter, and, and, and move things through that, that I that I thought were um, authentic and and fundamental themes, and um, probably the aspect of Dickinson's character personality that surprised me the most um, was her ambition was um uh the sense that she um as you mentioned she wrote that she uh, wanted to be distinguished that she wanted to make her family proud um, Dickinson published as you said only a handful of poems during her lifetime all anonymously um the her work was discovered a week after her death when her sister went into her bedroom to uh clean out Dickinson's effects and opened a drawer of a dresser and found sheet upon sheet upon sheet upon sheet of poems. Um, the family knew Dickinson wrote. Uh, I think they didn't know how much. But it was that sense of drive and ambition. And uh, I think Dickinson at one point said she she uh, that, that she wouldn't mind fame. But then this phrase, a great way off. Uh, so I, I, I have the sense that she was always writing for um, another generation, or uh, of, for a kind of immortality that that she could achieve through her own words.
0: Hmm. Well. I'd like to uh, take some of these days and, and and ask you to describe them in a bit more detail. And I was wondering if you could perhaps guide us by choosing uh, with, you know some among the 10 that are of, of particular uh, significance or that, that illustrate in particular how this one day can open up some of these larger themes. I was wondering if you could start by maybe picking out a, a day from uh her uh the the early part of her life her when she's a teenager when she's a very young woman is there one of the days that you cover there that you think is is particularly significant or illustrative of of this approach that you've taken
1: well well maybe the first chapter because it is um because it's subtle in, in a way uh um i i knew that In the first chapter, um, one of the things that a writer has to do is you have to introduce the cast of characters. Um, I couldn't just jump into a time when Dickinson was 30, for example, and maybe there was a more definitive action when she's publishing her first poem or something like that. But I wanted to see her as a teenager because um, uh, I I think the the seeds were there. So I thought long and hard about A Day to, to select dickinson wrote um what or what what we have recovered uh three volumes of letters many 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 letters scholars estimate that that's maybe one tenth of what she actually wrote but the rest are lost to history or they're in some new england barn somewhere and have haven't been discovered but i did have all these um Teenage letters to work from that, that Dickinson wrote friends and and so I went through all of those and I said okay where where can I where can I see the beginnings of that of that poet where where are those um, those seeds in, in the in the teenagers so um, one of Dickinson's best friends when she was young was a young woman named Abaya Root. And uh, Abiah moved away uh, a little bit, so that about thirty miles away, but not in Dickinson's hometown of Amherst anymore. And so that meant that they exchanged a lot of letters, and they are exuberant, and um, uh, as I said, a little bit um, smart alecky in the way that <laughs> that she knows that 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 she's good with with language. They are effusive and detailed, so. Um, looking for both a letter that would show the beginning of Dickinson, the poet, and choosing a time when she's fairly young so that I can introduce members of her family. I settled on this one letter that Dickinson wrote when she was 14. And the reason I chose it is that Dickinson seems to be rather self-conscious about setting the stage for herself as a writer. And in the in the letter, she tells Abaya that she doesn't have anything as formal as a flower in front of her to inspire her. She's just at her at at her desk. And then there is this phrase um, that, to my ear, uh, really does announce herself not only to Abaya but almost to the world at large when she says, "I'm sitting here." and all things are ready now on a literal level she's meaning i'm going to be writing but but dickinson you know is a poet she will become a poet and and her brain even at a very early age um is uh metaphorical uh so i thought that that was a pretty great phrase uh uh, to announce her beginnings and then um because I think most people's minds are are not only in the present, but then reel back to past events. Um, I then used uh, what I kind of thought of in my own mind as reeling back to introduce aspects, um, uh, details about Dickinson's father, who was a a lawyer in town, one of the most prominent citizens, the uh, treasurer of Amherst College Um, and, uh, a man who was rather, uh, stern and puffed up, but, um, who gave his daughter, he and his wife, Emily Norcross Dickinson gave their daughter a very great gift. And that is, they left her alone and they didn't, um, force her into roles or, you know, lots of parties where she would meet eligible young men and become married, you know, which was kind of one of a couple of occupations for women at, at the time. So I was able to introduce her father, her, her mother, her older brother that she was, um, uh, very, very close to. She once said there always was a hurrah wherever you was. She said of her older brother, Austin, um, her younger sister Lavinia Denny, who, um, was a, uh, a great protector, I think, of, of Emily Dickinson, not only when she was 14, but um, when she became a, a, um, a young woman, um, the writer that, that, that she was. Vinnie was not a poet, but Vinnie offered a great balance to Dickinson, a kind of pragmatic, uh, funny. Uh, Vinnie was known for doing great imitations, um, and she was so proud of Emily Dickinson. I was talking to somebody the other day, I think I was I was on another program and, and, uh, we were discussing Vinnie and I said, her pride knew no bounds. Um, uh, Dickinson was known as a great mouser. She was the, seemed to be the best in the family for <laughs> catching mice <laughs> in their, their, your country home. And, uh, and, uh, Vinnie commented on that, how, how good Emily was at, at catching mice. So, so I wanted to present this tableau of, um, of a family uh, living in Amherst, Massachusetts. Uh, that's actually very close to where I've lived for the last 40 years. Um, in Western Massachusetts, a country town, um, but a town also uh, known for higher education, hmm. um, Amherst College uh, in in the case of, of Dickinson's life. And I also wanted to spend a lot of time presenting Amherst. Um, Almost as a character in the story, because I think it was in in Emily Dickinson's life. Um, Amherst then, and Amherst now is is known for two things: farming or in the the rural farm belt of of Massachusetts, but also higher education. So it's always been um, a town of ideas and young people and aspiration. And I think um, all of those things greatly influenced Emily Dickinson. So I wanted to paint a broad sweep, you know, of the family of Dickinson's friends to show her as a um, a quick witted student um, uh, who had many friends. The seclusion had not set in when she was a a young woman at that time. And then in, introduce um, uh, some themes as well. That theme of ambition. Um, and also the theme of knowing her own mind. I think even at fourteen, Dickinson knew she was good with words. I think she knew what she wanted to do in life, although uh, she wasn't putting words to that exactly. You know, she she certainly knew she wasn't going to be a a teacher. Um, uh, a missionary was a, another um, occupation for. For young women at that time. She knew that wasn't going to be the course of her life, but she was beginning to figure it out. Um, And I think beginning to figure out how she could make a life um, with uh, the ability and the fascination she had with language.
0: She she had certain advantages in that regard, as you mentioned in the book, where she, her uh, father is is prosperous as a lawyer. He goes into politics, uh, which at the time required a degree of prosperity for a lot of people to do. And and so she had certain advantages in that respect that a a woman, say, who was a a mill worker or or, uh, a farmhand further west simply couldn't imagine.
1: Without a doubt. Dickinson had both class privilege and she had uh, the privilege of being a white woman. Um, I, uh, I often think of Emily Dickinson compared to, for example, the Brontes living about at the same time, daughter of a poor uh, minister, daughters of a poor minister in Yorkshire, and they die off pretty young, you know, at 28, 29, um, of, of tuberculosis. But Dickinson did have, uh, the family did have money. They were considered, um, kind of upper middle class, uh, and Dickinson did not have to work for a living, uh, so having a room of one's own, uh, which which she did um, all of her life, I think was a great advantage um, over over women who had to go out and, and earn a living. Uh, uh, Dickinson is writing in the middle of the of the Civil War. That's the time of her peak literary productivity. Um, obviously her life was not the same as a african american woman or an irish immigrant um her, her uh, the family had a uh, had help they had a, a series of domestic help um one of whom probably the most uh, important and closest to dickinson was an irish immigrant named margaret Maher, um who uh, who was with the family for four years and who um knew that that Dickinson was writing. There's some evidence that some of her, her poems were found in Maggie's trunk as, as it were. So, so yes, your, your point is a very good one. Um, that, that is not to say of course that Dickinson wouldn't have been the poet she was, if she hadn't had those class advantages, but, um, but they, they certainly helped.
0: You mentioned, uh, how her peak, uh, period of, uh, peak, uh, writing was during the civil war. And I was thinking uh, it, it brought to mind, uh, what I one of the things I noticed when I read your book, which is that you choose four moments that are uh, in this five year period, uh, starting with uh, her announcement mm. that she wants to be distinguished, which comes in eighteen fifty nine, to uh, her medical crisis in, in eighteen sixty four. Uh, what was it that that was it? The fact that that she was writing so much that led you to. Uh, identify those four periods during such a, a, a concentrated point in her life? Or was it really a, a, a turning point in, in her life more generally where a lot of things were changing at that point? She was, she was, uh, that was around the time she's turning 30. Uh, you say how momentous it was uh, nationally with the war going on. And it was, and even though she's in Massachusetts, as you explain in, 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 uh, in, in these chapters, it's, it's a, you know, the war does uh, touch her community very directly.
1: Oh absolutely. I I think the um I, you know the, the war was a passage that every American went went through and uh even though Massachusetts was was in the north and far away from from most battles it touched her deeply. I don't think it's any surprise that um that Emily Dickinson's peak literary productivity came at the same time because moments of high tension of high drama Um, I think, fueled her rather than um, caused her to be uh, uh, frozen, for example, or or distracted. I think quite the opposite. So the fact that four of those chapters came within that short period of time, I'm I'm glad you pointed that out, um, was was not just a happenstance. I mean, really (laughs) important things were were going on then for her, Um, you mentioned the, uh, the letter where Dickinson declares I wanted to be distinguished. This comes in a, in a letter to um, uh, her cousins that she uh, was particularly candid and forthcoming with. And uh, it's always been a favorite letter of mine. Dickinson is, is writing her cousin, Lou Norcross. I should put a little footnote in here just because it's weird. Um, the metrilineal line. Of Emily Dickinson Norcross. Her mother was Emily Norcross Dickinson. Later went on to found a greeting card company. Norcross greeting cards. Have you ever turned a greeting card over to the back and have seen Norcross on it? I just find that hilarious. You know, it's it's a great irony that, <laughs> that that descendants of the great Emily Dickinson would would be writing happy birthday to you in greeting cards. I don't know. I just find that <laughs> funny. Um, but, but but back back to this letter. Um, uh, Dickinson was writing on a snowy morning, and she was thinking back to a conversation she had had with Lou Norcross, her cousin, some time before, and she said. Do you remember that October morning when our families went out writing and you and I in the dining room decided to be distinguished? It is a great thing to be great, Lou, she goes on to say, and some can't achieve it, but some can. and I think we can learn. I find that a remarkable letter. Um, again, for Emily Dickinson to be talking about being distinguished and thinking about that. At a pretty early age, um, before she's really setting out to to uh, write the bulk of her poetry, so that came right before the Civil War, um, and then during the war, from the period of about eighteen sixty two to uh, uh, through the war itself, Dickinson is writing about a poem a day. Now, let me stop here a little bit and just. Clarify because Emily Dickinson rarely titled her poems. I think there may be 10 that she actually put a title to, and she rarely dated them. Um, Many of her poems, Dickinson wrote nearly 2,000. Many of them she wrote on pieces of stationery that she then folded and bound together in little booklets that um, editors later called fascicles. Um, over a thousand of Dickinson's poems were in these fascicles and they too are not dated. So it's very difficult for scholars to determine exactly when Dickinson wrote what or when she was revising something because she, she, um, she revised her poems time and time and time again. sometimes, 20 years later, she would return to a poem. So, dating Dickinson's poems is done through handwriting analysis and analysis of paper and, and other things. But it's really a, a great detective work to compare her poems and her handwriting to, for example, a letter that she wrote that she did date. So, it's a tricky business, you know, to talk about when Dickinson wrote what. But it is the general consensus of the scholarly community that that Emily Dickinson's peak literary productivity came at the same time as the war. Um, you mentioned that I, I wrote four chapters that, that all uh, happened within a pretty short period of time. And one of the most, uh, one of those chapters uh, that I think had direct relation to the Civil War is a day when Emily Dickinson wrote what I think is the most important letter in American literary history. Um, a young man from Amherst had been killed in the Battle of New Bern in North Carolina. And he wasn't he wasn't um any old young man. He was the son of the Amherst College president. Um in Amherst at that time he was the fair-haired boy. He was the almost the heir apparent, being the, the son of the Amherst College president, and well liked and beloved in his own right. He was, I think, if I'm remembering correctly, only 21. He had had he had left his college classes as many Amherst students did, and joined a regiment led by his former chemistry professor, um, a Colonel William Clark, and he was. Killed in that battle, um, the Union won the battle and General Burnside in acknowledgement of the role the Amherst boys, as they were called, played in the battle, uh, said that a captured Confederate cannon should go to Amherst College to recognize their sacrifice. So there was a big, big celebration and a commemoration of, of that event that Dickinson's father being one of the leading citizens was the master of ceremonies of, and it was held on the steps of Johnson chapel at Amherst college. We don't know that Dickinson attended. There is no record, but we know she would have read the report of it in the newspaper that occurred days later at that event. Her father said that individual lives like, Frazier Stearns, the young man who was killed, are tied to larger events in history, that we don't live outside of history, that everybody lives in it, and that our lives are tied to the sweep of history, and then these are his words, by sacred associations. The very next day, Dickinson sits down to write that most important letter in American Literary History where she had read an article in the Atlantic Monthly that offered advice to would-be writers written by an essayist named Thomas Wentworth Higginson. And out of the blue, she selects four poems that she had been working on among hundreds at that time, some of her most famous, and sends them off to Higginson in Worcester, Massachusetts, this stranger, this prominent literary man. And she writes, Mr. Higginson, are you too deeply occupied to say if my verse is alive? And that's the letter that then begins a correspondence that will last until the end of Dickinson's life. With Higginson at first offering her advice Dickinson not taking it, <laughs> and, and and then he you know finally realizes um, this is somebody of extraordinary genius, and I'm I'm not going to I'm going to hold my tongue from now on. But uh, after Dickinson's death, uh, the family knew Dickinson had written Higginson that they had been writing all those years. He came to visit twice. They contacted him with the poems that they found, and that's why we have emily dickinson's poetry today that it was that that introduction of dickinson asking dickinson to tell her if her verse was alive uh that's what set the stage for emily dickinson becoming one of the most important poets in the english language
0: hmm. you uh use uh one of the uh two times that she meets with Higginson as uh, uh, as the basis of another chapter talking about a pivotal day in 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 her life uh uh why did they only meet twice if, if, if given that they had this this you know di- this corresponding relationship
1: um well uh why yes, I think Higginson um Higginson lived uh uh, first in Worcester, and then he, he himself became an officer in the Civil War, and he was um, uh, down south. Uh, he then came back and lived in Newport, Rhode Island, and and uh, for a while in Cambridge and Boston. And uh, there it, it just wasn't an opportunity for them to meet. They talked a long time um, about wanting to meet each other, but it was eight years uh, from the time that that remarkable letter was sent until they finally met and uh, and you can imagine (laughs) Dickinson is is pretty deeply into her seclusion uh, by them she was almost 40 and um, she didn't see people very often and so to see uh, to see someone let alone Higginson somebody that held such import for her was uh, simply a stunning moment and Thank goodness, uh, Thomas wentworth Higginson was a good reporter, and he took <laughs> um, he he took mental notes so that he could write his wife that that evening about what it was like to meet as he called it his poet and so i I had wonderful resources to use for that day, uh, first and foremost. Higginson's detailed letter about what meeting Emily Dickinson for the first time was like, including um, the very moment that they met, when he first heard her coming down the steps. He said with a soft, childlike step, and then she entered rather dramatically with um, two day lilies in her hand and said, "These, sir, are my introduction." And then she sort of stammered, as he recalled, and said, I rarely see people. I hardly know what to say. And then off she went, nonstop talking. Um, he, could, he could barely get a question in. I mean, what, what he wanted to ask most of all, he later said, is "How do you, how do you get through your days? You don't have a job outside the home. You don't see people very often. Don't you want to travel or go to the seaside or see people and Dickinson just leveled him. She said that she had no desire or any want uh to do that that the the world at her desk was um was living enough and uh, then she said, "I feel I have not expressed myself strongly enough, and she weren't at it again um so that that was one of the many uh stunning uh remarks she made that day perhaps the most important and there were so many again I I as a writer I had so much to work from with with that letter but there probably one one part of the discussion was more important than anything else and that's when Dickinson described what a poem was to her um and and you could tell that Higginson really paid attention because um, he quotes this uh, in his letter to his wife the evening after he met Dickinson. He said, the poet said, if I read a book and it makes me, no, makes me so cold, no fire ever can warm me. I know that is poetry. If I read a book and it feels as though the top of my head were taken off, I know that is poetry. These are the only ways I know it. Is there any other way? So, for me, when you put those comments about so cold, no fire can ever warm me, or the top of my head taking off, those are visceral reactions. She's not saying if I read something and it makes me think, you know, or or you know, kind of opens up um, my thought processes. She's not talking about an intellectual response to poetry. She's saying what happens first is a physical one, is a visceral one. And that makes me think of that first letter that she wrote him out of the blue when she says, are you too deeply occupied to say if my verse is alive? Alive, cold, top of your head taken off. Something connects all of those. And I think it is that, that physical visceral response to Dickinson poetry had to hit you in the muscle and in the bone. That's what she aimed for.
0: Mm. It, it, it's interesting how you uh, have this meeting with, with, with Higginson as, as one of your late chapters. And then the, one of the, uh, the, one of the other ones is another meeting that she has with uh, Helen Hunt Jackson. When, 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 when she comes to to visit Dickinson, and I was thinking about how it, how those the, the fact that you have these later chapters around these visits kind of speaks to uh that 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 growing isolation that you describe how she 's withdra- a bit more withdrawn and how increasingly people have to you know really reach out and come to her to uh, uh and, and and the snapshots they provided her uh, at that point in her life I thought were really interesting
1: yes helen hunt jackson um. I, I feel, is a very important person in Dickinson's life. Most people um, don't know who Helen Jackson is anymore. She was a very prominent um, writer in, in the 19th century, not only poetry, but um, travel articles, and then uh, quite famously uh, in the latter part of her life, um, novels about Native Americans that, that really turned a spotlight to this country's um, Ab- abominable treatment uh, of American Indians. Uh, probably the most famous book she wrote was called *Ramona*, um, which shed a light on that that mistreatment. But before she was a poet, and before she was an essayist, and before she was a novelist, Helen Hunt Jackson was Emily Dickinson's neighbor. Um, they they grew up as girls and uh, used to play um, under the uh, the lilac bushes around each other's house. Um, Helen Hunt Jackson's father was a um a professor at Amherst College and and her mother was uh oh the mother that every every kid loved in town. She welcomed children to the house. It's a very gregarious, um, learned, uh, fun uh family. And um but Helen was a handful. Um her her parents even admitted that. She kind of got herself into trouble a lot of times. Um and, uh, uh, one, one time, um, uh, somebody was, was kind of chastising her and scolding her when she was a, a little girl and, and saying she needed to behave better. And she said, well, she couldn't promise to behave, but better, but she would try. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I think, I think I like that from, from the get go, but, um, they became very acquainted later in their life. Helen married, moved to Washington DC, uh New York for a while, and and ended up in the same Newport boarding house with Thomas Wentworth Higginson that Dickinson was beginning to write to. So so their their lives through Higginson came together again. And and in the chapter you mentioned that, that happens later in the book, um, they they had visited on occasion, they'd continued, continued to write. Dickinson has shared some of uh, Dickinson's poetry with Helen. Emily shares some of it with Helen herself. And Dickinson thinks that, uh, I'm sorry, that Helen Jackson thinks that Emily Dickinson's poetry is extraordinary and should see the light of day. So she comes for a visit um, when Dickinson is uh, uh, still writing, but past those fervent uh, Civil War years and um, takes Emily Dickinson on. Uh, you know, I think Helen Hunt Jackson was, uh, was a, a singular person in um, in, in not uh, uh, sort of um, bowing to Dickinson's reticence of saying, um, in fact, she says it in the letter, she said, it is wrong to your day and time that you do not publish. So she came to town to have that stern talk with, with <laughs> Emily Dickinson. And uh, I I, uh, I loved writing that chapter because I love Helen Hunt Jackson so much. And um, I, uh, again, there were lots of materials that I used to, to paint the scene, including Helen arriving in town and spending the evening at the, uh, what we call around here, the, the summit house. It was a hotel at the top of, Mount Holyoke, uh, Western Massachusetts is ringed with mountains and um, Mount Holyoke being one of them. And so she went to stay in, in this hotel uh, the night before this important meeting with Emily Dickinson. And, you know, you kind of talk about what doesn't get in the book or what you put in, but you realize it's a, it's, uh, a little bit indulgent or you, you've gone <laughs> down a rabbit hole too too far. And Oh, my goodness. I went to town on this evening where that Helen spent before meeting Emily Dickinson in the summit house and how she had to get up to the top of it in this kind of precarious way and page after page after page. Well, you know, that that all got X'd out, but, um, but I, I I used a bit of it to, to kind of paint the, uh, or give a sense of the tension, you know, that was in Helen Hunt Jackson's mind, um, the night before she would, um, and Emily Dickinson down and have kind of a stern talk. And, and uh, so they did. And um, you could just see the the warmth between the, le- between the two women and the letters that they later wrote. Dickinson didn't, didn't say she was going to hand over her poems to Helen. Helen had some her, of her own. But she did finally relent and allow one of her poems to be published in a book the only book publication of Emily Dickinson during her lifetime, but again, anonymously, without her name attached to it. It was uh, the poem, Success is Counted Sweetest by Those Who Ne'er Succeed. Some people think it has Civil War imagery in it, although I think Dickinson wrote it somewhat before the war itself. But Helen was able to get that poem out of Emily Dickinson in a way that uh, other people certainly were not. Um, They continued to write uh, for the rest of their lives. Um, Helen contracted cancer, had a number of falls, um, died the year before Emily Dickinson, and when Dickinson wrote a condolence letter to Helen Hunt Jackson's husband. It it was one of the most moving um, letters, I think, in in Dickinson's um, entire output, where, where she wrote him Um, Helen of Troy may die, but Helen of Colorado never.
0: (laughs) That is a great sentiment. I I, I was thinking about that last chapter because in that chapter, there's there's uh, throughout it, there's all a a sense of 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 growing isolation and loss. You you, you chronicle all the people who've been part of Dickinson's life who are passing on during these final years, and yet it's also the chapter which you have this event. Which allows for the unleashing of all of Emily Dickinson's poems. I mean, basically, her death is, you know, the, the end of, of one phase of her career as a poet. But it's also, uh, in, in so many ways, the beginning of another phase, the phase which, you know, her, her output finally is, is available for, for people to see
1: that that's right um uh emily dickinson died uh on uh may 15 1886 at um 55 years 5 months and 5 days i don't know what that means but it is sort of interesting she died of uh probably the result of hy- hypertension um her death certificate which we have here in town um in amherst uh lists her occupation as at home <laughs> so that that was quite a bit about how the how, how the world or at least the town um regarded her because they had obviously no idea um of of this literary output but i i, I tried in that chapter to um to bring together um a, a, a lot of the forces in, in Dickinson's life that uh that um resulted in this uh, extraordinary um volume of poetry and As you said, the people who were uh, near to her, such as Helen Hunt Jackson and Samuel Bowles, who was editor of the Springfield Republican newspaper and a man absolutely immersed uh, in daily life of politics and literature, and who published a number of Dickinson's poems in the in the Republican newspaper. Again, all without her name attached to it. Um, A man that uh, uh, who was a Close member, of, a close friend of the family, Otis Lord, um, a judge from uh, Salem, Massachusetts, at Boston Way, that Dickinson began a, a love affair with uh, in the later years of her life. Although um, uh, primarily through letters, occasional visits, Otis Lord, another one of the uh, ones who who died in in her in her final years, and. So I tried to bring together these these people. Her her sister in law, Susan Gilbert Dickinson, married to Emily's brother Austin. They lived next door. Probably no one in Dickinson's life understood her more, um, treasured her poems more than Sue Dickinson. They had a a. a a not entirely uh, smooth relationship. There were moments of trial and and, and moments when their their relationship with was fraught. But Dickens, but um, Sue stayed by Dickinson all of her life, and was there in the end. Uh, again, one uh, another um, just remarkable letter is a note that Emily Dickinson sent to Sue, um, a note pretty late in the poet's life where she told sue where were my hands cut your fingers would be found inside so i i tried to bring these forces to uh to the last moments of emily dickinson's life which were which were pretty specifically chronicled by um uh by her brother uh she she died um, the, in the evening about six o'clock on May 15th as the choir was rehearsing across the street. I tried to find out what song they were rehearsing, but I never could find out what, <laughs> what that was. But, um, but, but using, uh, I tried to use so many details to evoke a sense of, of the, the sweep and the drama um, of, of her last years. And then, as I mentioned earlier, a week after her death, her sister, Lavinia, is going into her room, and she opens that, that drawer and finds all these poems. And the first thing she does is goes to Thomas Wentworth Higginson, who had, uh, was preached part of the funeral service just the week before, and said, what do we do with these? She also shared them with Sue and said, we need to make these see the light of day. Emily Dickinson, before she died, told her sister, Vinnie, burn my letters, which was not an uncommon thing to do at that time. And Vinnie did. And Dickinson scholars and writers like me, our, our heart just goes in our, my throat when I think of all those letters that people wrote to Emily Dickinson or copies of letters that she wrote others that just went up in smoke. But Vinnie listened very carefully. And it didn't seem to us now looking back on this and from what we know about this event that Dickinson said, burn my poems. So they, she didn't light a match to those <laughs> and, and went to Higginson, went to Sue and uh, Sue sat on them for, for a long time and Vinnie got um, antsy and and didn't think that that enough was being done with them. I think Sue was was very thoughtfully trying to consider what was the best thing to do. But then he got antsy, and so um, she contacted Higginson, and then Higginson began working with a co-editor named Mabel Loomis-Todd. And Mabel Loomis-Todd was the wife of the astronomy professor at Atmos College lived across the meadow from Emily Dickinson and was also having a very long-term affair with Austin Dickinson, Dickinson's brother. So, boy, that cracked things in two. And Sue Dickinson, of course, wanted nothing to do with Mabel Loomis Todd. She and Austin never divorced. But it did result years later in Emily Dickinson's manuscripts being split between two places. The poems that Sue had ended up one place <laughs> and the poems that Mabel Loomis Todd had ended up in another, Harvard and Amherst College. Um, so the, the publication of, of Dickinson's poems, the first volume came out four years after her death, came out in 1890 by Higginson and mabel loomis todd um was the beginning of, of this uh this fracture of the family um mm. i shouldn't say the beginning it already but uh, was was um uh, a very very difficult time for all involved because of the affair mm. Well, we've taken
0: up a lot of your time but before we go could you tell us what you're working on now
1: um well i'm i'm uh uh, given the COVID isolation, um, that, that we're all in the midst of, I'm, um, my, my book tour is, is not happening. So I'm cranking out, um, a few articles. Um, I did a, uh, article on the, on Emily Dickinson's white dress that it was in the Paris review, not, not too long ago. I was so fortunate to, um, have photographer James Garrett, um, who is my friend and neighbor, uh, I uh, do many of the photographs of, of um for for the book and uh some of the most uh, extraordinary are of, of Dickinson's signature white dress. So I did an article on that. I have another article coming out about uh, uh what most surprised me about um Emily Dickinson, and that was uh her am- ambition. Um that's gonna be an air mail um uh in a couple of weeks. And um uh, I'm also working on an article about Dickinson as the inventor of social isolation. Uh, <laughs> no one, no, no, no one knew how to cope with these fever days as it were um, better than Emily Dickinson. So pranking out a few of those, but my next book topic um, is going to be on Dolly Parton. Oh really? And uh, yeah. So uh, I know this will make people who look at my, the range of my books just shake their heads again, but um I think it's uh, another way of getting at American culture, at the American experience. Um, I want to look at class, I want to look at regionalism, and I love country music, so um, I'm hoping uh, that once I can get on the road again and and, uh, do some research, that that'll be be next in the queue.
0: Well, it sounds like a great book topic, and I hope that when you do complete it, we can have you back on the New Books Network.
1: That would be great. I would look forward to it.
0: Uh, Martha Ackman, thank you very much for taking some time to speak with us. Hope you have a wonderful day.
1: Thank you, Mark.